Martin McLaughlin here for Stick Together, a half hour of workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We come to you from 3CR on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation with respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. We are coming to you on your community radio station on the Community Radio Network with the financial support of the Community Radio Federation. May the 1st saw nationwide and international celebrations of workers' past, present and future struggles. Top of the list for many is low wages as the cost of living bites. Today we hear some reflections on the cost of living crisis from a rural perspective from Dave Fox from the AMWU, the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union and Secretary of the Bendigo Trades and Labor Council who took some time to talk with Stick Together's Rebecca Langley-Mays. We draw the lens back to a world trade perspective after that at about IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, and the most recent update from Trade Justice America on the progress of IPEF, the latest US economic pact being hammered out, which includes Australia and 12 of our nearest neighbours. But first, some union news. Well, the 23rd was the 10th anniversary of the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh, which saw the collapse of an eight-storey building housing five garment factories, which produced clothing for numerous well-known Western clothing brands. The collapse killed 1,132 people outright and left over 2,000 injured, including those who had had to have limbs amputated to release them from the rubble. This does not include the many family members left without a breadwinner and traumatised by the death of their loved ones. The majority of dead and injured were young women and their children. The international union movement's response to the Rana Plaza collapse included the establishment of an accord to force safety issues to be addressed in factories in the global south that feed into the wealthy country's supply chains. Michelle O'Neill, president of the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, at one event to mark the Rana Plaza collapse in Australia. And what we know is that it's only that substantive ongoing pressure from unions and activists that have kept brands there and kept them signing on. There's 195 global brands that are now part of the accord and it has made a difference. It is about safety and workers' rights go beyond safety. But it has saved lives. One example, in 2017, workers at one factory in Bangladesh reported to the Accord that there were cracks in the factory walls and the owner had refused to act. So the Accord ordered the immediate evacuation of the building and ensured that workers only went back into that building after the structural works had been done to fix it. One example of many, many others. But what I want to end with telling you is that I'm a unionist. And what I know is that what really makes a difference is workers organising and unionism. And just think for a moment, when those workers were standing outside that factory, being told they had to go back in, how different it might have been if they'd been organised into a union and had that confidence of collectively saying no, rather than being individually forced to make that call. 
So unionism, of course, delivers safer workplaces, but it's also what we need to deliver fair wages and conditions, the right to be able to win a living wage, to make sure that every day we improve the rights of workers around the world. To mobilise and be able to organise is the very best protection and the very best power any worker can have. So I'm going to end with this. I remember that day 10 years ago really well. Um, and I remember it partly because of the shock of it, but also because just the week before I'd come back from being overseas and I was meeting with Bangladesh garment friends and comrades, planning how we might design an a, a enforceable agreement for the companies because just six months earlier, the Tazreen factory fire had happened in Bangladesh and over 100 workers had been burnt to death. And then we came back thinking, OK, we've got this, in, and then this happened. And I remember talking to those workers in the, the union comrades in the following days and hearing those stories of them being involved in rescuing workers, pulling workers out of that rubble and of dealing with the families that were trying to find their loved ones. So I think it's appropriate that we do stop and give a moment's silence because we do know that it's absolutely essential to mourn for the dead and to make sure that we absolutely fight like hell for the living. So if you could please join me in a minute of silence. May 2022. A 72-year-old man died after suffering lung disease following exposure to asbestos. On 12th of May, a 55-year-old man died by suicide following exposure to workplace pressure and poor workplace culture. On 23rd of May, a 65-year-old man died from occupational disease from firefighting. On 25th of May, a 54-year-old farm worker was crushed by a seed load at a property northeast of Ararat. The farm worker was pinned against the top of the trailer when the bag shifted after being lifted above the truck. Days later, on April the 28th, was International Workers Memorial Day, the day put aside to remember workers who have died as a consequence of their working lives. It is interesting to note that at the Victorian event, the number given for lost comrades was 60, despite official numbers being set at 45 nationwide. This shows the contestability of the space that is workplace-related deaths. Some instant, such as the 23-year-old man killed in a vehicle-related incident and the 72-year-old who died of an asbestos-related illness. Two representatives from the Rana Plaza collapse brought to Australia by Asia Pacific Links spoke at the Victorian event. Thank you. I am Rana Plaza. I am Rana তারপরে আমি সেখান থেকে বের হয়ে আমি একটা কথাই বলতে চাই আমি আর কোন রানা প্লাজা চাই না আমি সকল কারখানাকে এমন একটা কারখানা চাই শেষ কারখানা যেন শক্তিশালী একটা কারখানা হয় সকল শ্রমিক যেন সেখানে সাহস বুকে নিয়ে কাজ করতে পারে she said i am rupali akhtar i was under the rubble on 24th april 2013 for more than 18 hours 
and with all this experience of traumatic uh, physical and mental wound now i don't want any more uh, rana plaza or any more death in any uh, corner of the world uh, now i think we need a safe factory and we need to be together uh, i think i want to share few things with rupali i am taslim akhtar president of bangladesh garment workers solidarity and rupali also the health secretary of bangladesh garment workers solidarity uh, we want to give a special thanks to all of you for inviting us and we are here to be part of the international memorial day um, we are here representing the 4 million bangladeshi garment workers who are struggling drawn to dust to make your dress and make your dress with uh, beautiful dresses and make your beautiful morning and we are representing 4 million workers who earn 80% foreign currency in our country and we had a traumatic experience in 2013 on 24th April more than 1100 workers uh, died and here uh, we want to say that uh, we are not uh, only Bangladeshi citizen we are a member of the global world and we are living in a supply chain Bangladeshi garment factory is not a local industry it's under a supply chain so we want uh, to make a strong solidarity with all of you because we don't want any more Rana Plaza or any more killing in any any side of the world and uh, today we want to remember especially uh, more than 1100 workers who lost their life and who lost their dreams uh, and we also want to remember 60 workers that you lost and I think uh, with our pain, with our sorrow and with our strength of struggle we can make a strong solidarity together and I'm happy to echo with all of you remember the date and fight for the living workers of the world unite. Thank you. You're with Annie on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news, social justice issues. Dave Fox from the AMWU, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, and the Secretary of the Bendigo Trades and Labor Council in rural Victoria, contacted Stick Together's Rebecca Langley-Mays to let people know how the cost of living crisis is affecting his members. Dave, it's been a while since we've had a chat, but really always enjoy talking with you and hearing about what you've been up to and what is going on with your work with AMWU and also the Bendigo Trades Hall Council. Mm -hmm. So yeah, cost of living crisis. Yeah, what what have you been hearing about from members and, and people in the community and how, how are people going at the moment? Well, look, I've done a number of EBAs over the course of the last 12 months, done with the big players in the food industry to even smaller companies and medium range. And all throughout the membership is the big concern is cost of living. Hence why when we present companies with logger claims, the demands for a high increase, like, for example, up around 8 to 10%, because people know they're falling behind. They have people out there are suffering at the moment and they've had to cut back. I think actually amongst a lot of members, those who've got a mortgage, they're full well, they're in dire straits and they certainly are trying to um, make ends meet. But as the cost of living pressures increase, 
the more they're going to be looking to cut back elsewhere in order to, order to survive. And I think that's just came to the general mindset of a lot of people, which is quite understandable. How are we going to survive where everything's so outright expensive? I mean, employers, no doubt, out there, they're going on about, oh, you know, all about costs and that. I mean, there may be big issues. Yes, there is costs, not labour costs, though. It's all to do down with energy costs, transport costs, shortage of materials. There's a worldwide shortage of seem to be everything at the moment. And on the insidious side of that, what companies have done, either deliberately slowed production down on many uh, raw materials or, uh, or produced materials, or they just can't get anything, uh, but they increase their profit margin even further, put the price on to increase their profit margin further. As the profits are increasing, guess what goes down? Wages, because that's where predominantly where they need to source their profit from is uh, from the workers' labour or what they create, and that's where they do. They can't control every prices of everything else, but that's where they source it. And on top of that, now with high inflation rate, although, yes, it is projected to decrease over the next two years, I won't hold my hopes up too high about that. How much does it decrease is another question. In fact, these people are still going to suffer. Even if, uh, hypothetically, you know, by the end of the year, it decreased down to 4%. People are still going to be way behind in the cost of living. And obviously, this is a concern right across the board. It's amazing, though, now there's a lot more interest from members. And even when uh, new, new members are joining up, a lot more interest now in the key bread and butter economic issues than they have been in the past. They're sure, they've had an interest. But we are really actually having a good, um, vibrant discussion about this. I've had some very interesting union meetings. Uh, yeah. yeah. Can you be yeah. a bit more specific about what are people going through? Yeah. Well, look, we had one story last week. I was at a company up there in Chirk. We just commenced negotiations. But you told me one member who just finished his apprenticeship, it's now a trade, he's got a mortgage, just had a kid. You guess what he's paying each week back to the banks? $700. A week. That's how high things are going. So, mortgage. Yeah, just on that alone. Yeah, so yeah. obviously going to be looking to try and keep ahead. That's just one case of me. And no one wants to lose their home. Of Technically, your home is actually owned by a bank, really. Yes. You'll just put it off over a period of long time. What proportion of his income would be going to the mortgage? Anywhere between a third to half his income. Yeah. That's a huge whack. Uh, I mean, if I don't know he's actual, if he's yeah, just the yeah. base tr- He's gone up some level. So, I mean, hopefully, even, even so, if he's earning $2,000 a week, right? Mm. And that's a fact is that's still a big chunk because yes. you've got everything else to pay on. You've got the utilities payments, you've got council rates, you've also got to think about food you've got to provide, fuel, running of your vehicle because you know, insurance companies are just as eager as scandalous and parasitic like banks. So, all these things. So, by the time, you go through it, it's probably very, very little change in, in, in his pocket. If you're lucky to have 100 bucks by out, out of that, that's probably well goes to a savings somewhere. And I thought, well, we'll see where interest rates go. But I mean, once you borrow money, I mean, that's with interest. You need, you know, just buy like X amount when you just pay that X amount back. You're paying, yes, borrowing exactly. Back. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So actually, mm. what would be happening is probably the amount he's paying is only mm. paying off interest and not paying off any of the loan. So it's, yeah. it's not actually reducing the loan overall. Mm. Yeah. So he's been basically bonded into debt. Yes. Basically. And how about the housing situation? Because all over the country there's a crisis. Have you got members who are also being impacted by that? Yes, yes. And obviously they're hurting. We're now seeing builders going bust. Yeah, um, it's just like 
domino effect. I'd hate to be uh, someone in a young person's position who just recently got a deposit for a new house to be built and knowing full well, it can't, it's going to be half built and it's going to be staying like that for a very long time until they get, until the accreditors and uh, administrators sort of company out. Because that has a flow on effect. You know, who builds a house, you might have a contract carpenter, a uh, mm. bricklayer, and all that, only a small groups. So they're usually self-employed. So it has a flow on effect to them. And then, of course, they're not going to work for free. It's like a snowball effect. You have the snowflake that, that creates the avalanche, and this is what we're seeing uh, right around our eyes. Um, and while there's a talk fest around the Reserve Bank and also the federal government at the moment, not really generally trying to deal with, oh, well, we'll just rewrite how the Reserve Bank's going to operate. Well, no, they need to be forced into actually doing something, jumping in now to alleviate all this. And... Also, just on how I'm not trying to get off too off track with housing, the cost of the cost of the rental or buying a house. Yeah, rentals. I was going to say, mm. I'm sure some of your members are struggling to find affordable yeah. rentals as well, not just those with mortgages are struggling. Well, there's, yeah. there's a lot actually now living in caravan parks. I was, I was gobsmacked uh, the other day. I was talking to a few people up at in Shepparton. Yep. They're working for the big company SBC. And they said, oh, no, a lot of uh, there's some, you'd be surprised how many people are living in caravan parks now. Mm. You know, at least they pay a rent. They don't pay all the other utility bills and stuff. Yes. Right. So that's what we're going to be seeing, a big increase in people living in caravans and mobile homes or, or cars and vehicles. They might work full time, exactly like America. You'll, you'll see tent city prop up big time. I mean, well, I think we're a reflection of that on a smaller scale, but we're definitely it will increase here. <laughs> And you said recently that AMWU released some data and some information about some of the cost of living issues that are going on. Did you want to talk to that? Yes. And what it basically comes down to, it shows you where the current inflationary rate is around about 7.4%. Uh, the average wage increase, they've averaged there is 36 Our research department does a really good job on this. But they, they actually showed all the increases of the essential cost from food. Everything's up. And obviously, housing is the big one. That's up, yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's important. But also, yeah, it's said like you're going um, your common groceries every week. That's increased, and even too, if you've actually noticed, if you walk going into the supermarkets, how much there's a shortage of of certain products. Yeah, and, like and there was no food. potato chips for ages. The frozen chips and stuff. Yeah. Yes, no, because I actually um, organised McCain's Foods in Ballarat. Well, okay, we had the uh, the heavy rain we had back in October and floods that affected the potato production. Um, they've had to source potatoes from interstate, predominantly South Australia and elsewhere. But even still, where they actually end up to source them, but then the resources are getting fewer and fewer in between. So you have a natural disaster like that. Okay, where are we going to source it? But South Australia might need those potatoes for their own market. Yes, but now they've actually us. But what they what happens there? Someone's making massive profit out of this too. Yeah, well, at the moment too, I didn't realise, but we've actually got a worldwide poultry shortage as well, both with eggs, which is uh, really increased. Wow. Um, those, Where did that? Yep. How did? Where's well, that information uh, coming from? That's coming from overseas. I would read a lot from other sources. The new sources, RT as well, especially. But they've got a good program called Cost of Living, and they're talking about avian flu. Yeah, wiping out a lot of. Stocks, uh, but also too other uh, because of all the instability around there. But so it's not just chicken itself, but eggs have increased, and eggs are you know can be some of the staple diet as well. Yeah, and then now they're paying double, double, triple um, that amount than what they were paying only a few years ago. So we have that. We also have a worldwide shortage of beef. We've had drought here, obviously, and we're trying to replenish our stocks. 
But all our best beef might have got exported. I mean, people that talk about buying a $40 steak at you know, pub meal or something like that, and it's true. You look at how much it costs. I just shake my head. And this is what I'm talking about. These the reductions ramped down, but we also haven't got enough to keep up with going capacity either. So people have been paying all, all through the roof mm. for all those basic things. But even like with fruit and veggies. I mean, the, the other one as well that's most important is the multinational control of a big agribusiness, but also our food production facilities. McCain's is Canadian-owned. Mars, Wrigley, I think it's American. Uh, SBC is a conglomerate of many people, but they're both based out of Singapore. And we should be talking about where the major banks, factories and industries come under public ownership and we can develop the economy around a proper common plan and a benefit the people. Uh, at the moment, we live under a system of profits in command and then obviously government policy and it's all about protecting the profit. You're with Annie on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news, social justice issues. To finish up, we go to a recent Trade Justice America briefing about IPEF, India-Pacific Economic Framework, the latest US economic pact being hammered out to include the following countries, Australia, Brunei, Philippines, Fiji, India, Indonesia, Singapore, Japan, the Republic of Korea, Thailand, Malaysia, New Zealand and Vietnam. If and when it is passed, it will have effects on all of the lives of workers in these countries. So the next full round of IPEF negotiations is scheduled to take place in Singapore the week of May 8th. And then also in May, trade ministers are expected to meet in Detroit at the tail end of the APEC summit that's happening there. The U.S. is chairing negotiations on almost every IPEF chapter, regardless of what country the negotiations are held in. And they're really trying to move forward quickly so that they can strike a final deal by November in time for the APEC heads of state meeting that's being held in San Francisco. People here might recall that the TPP negotiations took like six or seven years. So to get a trade deal of this scale done by November would be unprecedented in terms of speed. And in terms of updates since our last call, there are a few new bits of information that I really want us to focus in on today. The first one has to do with the so-called digital trade chapter. The digital chapter is the one that corporate lobbyists are pushing the hardest because it seeks to dramatically expand rights for corporations when it comes to your personal data and to their ability to go largely unregulated in the, the digital economy. During the Bali round of IPEF negotiations last month, the U.S. introduced its proposal for IPEF's digital trade chapter. But it left one important section of that chapter completely blank. That section has to do with secrecy guarantees for algorithms and for source codes. Um, Big tech has been pushing really hard for these secrecy rules to be included. And thus far, the Biden administration has been undecided and has left that issue to be determined. The language in this area that's being pushed by corporate interests would restrict pre-screening and general review of algorithms and source code for racial biases, for gender biases, for labor law violations, and for other potential abuses. So that's to say, when an algorithm kicks SNAP recipients off their benefits, or as happened in Seattle, stops choosing women to be interviewed for jobs, written into trade policy would be protections for companies. So those algorithms that made those decisions couldn't be reviewed, and that the U.S. government could be preempted from passing rules requiring their review. That's a pretty big deal, as artificial intelligence becomes further and further intertwined with our daily lives. We don't want IPEF and all the trade deals that are slated to be built off of IPEF to be used to shield companies from scrutiny and accountability for discrimination, for labor violations, and other abuses of AI that, frankly, most of us can't even really imagine, right, in 2023. As you know, 
these trade deals lock in rights for corporations for a really long time, and it's extraordinarily difficult to unlock them once they're set in place, even in the face of new and unexpected crises. One example of that, just for context, is that I and many of my colleagues spent the lion's share of 2021 and 2022 unsuccessfully trying to get a waiver of trade rules um, that continue to block access to COVID vaccines and medications in low and middle income countries. Even in the face of a global pandemic that's killed millions of people, cost trillions of dollars and robbed even affluent and privileged people out of years of their lives, even then we've been able, we've been unable to get adjustments to these dangerous and outdated trade rules. So when it comes to AI, we definitely shouldn't be locking in dangerous secrecy rules for algorithms and source codes in the first place. Consumer groups, faith groups, members of Congress, and others have all been urging the administration to, to simply not introduce any IPEF language on this topic. That's the best way to ensure that our government and other governments are free to screen and regulate AI as needed uh, in the future without worrying about running afoul of trade rules. Secondly, I wanted to flag that there might be some smoke and mirrors afoot relative to IPEF's labor enforcement provisions. So since the start, we've been calling for IPEF to include not just strong labor standards, but standards that are backed up by facility-specific rapid response enforcement mechanisms that improve on those found in the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. We know from decades of experience that whatever labor standards you attach to a trade deal are practically worthless unless there are tools in place to ensure that those standards get enforced. And what we want are facility-specific enforcement tools that allow labor advocates to go down to the level of individual plants and companies and say, if you're violating labor standards, there's a mechanism in place to find your goods and services or ban them from coming into the country altogether. Unfortunately, like I said, I think there might be some trickery afoot here. And I can't say that for certain because the IPEF process is still um, veiled in, in a lot of secrecy. But my worry is that the U.S. may introduce some kind of facility-specific complaint process, but without the actual penalties for labor violations that are needed to force companies to change bad behavior. If my suspicions are true, that's essentially what Bill Clinton gave us with the original labor side deal in NAFTA, a process for people to call out companies for labor violations, um, but with no real mechanism for forcing them to change. So please just be aware of that and be on guard against it. And please keep calling out for real labor enforcement tools. Um, the last thing that I want to mention here, uh, some really exciting news. This week, the entire class of Democratic freshmen in the House of Representatives, all 36 of them, wrote to the president urging the administration to work with Congress and civil society groups to make sure they get the labor chapter right, that they get the digital chapter right, and that they get the climate provisions right. That effort was led by Congresswoman Budzinski of Illinois and Congressman Deluzio of Pennsylvania. But again, every single Democratic freshman in the House joined with them on it unanimously, which is just another strong signal that the old model of corporate-centered trade deals is not acceptable and that trade deals from here on out need to be truly worker-centered, climate-friendly, and not rigged by big tech. That's it for Stick Together this week. If you want to catch up with our program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or at your favourite podcast site. You can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by ringing 03 and leaving us a message. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. And until next time, stick together. We'll go out with a song from the International Memorial Day event in Melbourne, sung by the Victorian Trades Hall Choir.
lies were carelessly undone, we know there is a better way. So many sorrows, too many tears, for those tomorrows, all these years. A life is not meant to be lived with fear, we know there is a better way. issues every day. We work to live, not just for pay. With our union, we have the same. Just as the beacon that lights our way. Today we stand in solidarity and offer comfort to the families who could imagine seeing days We know there is a better way.